It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I am here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined right now by Lalani Farah. She is the global director of The Shift, which is a movement to secure the human right to housing. Uh, we have been talking about the housing crisis here in America for quite some time, and we need a broader perspective on this. Lalani, thank you so much for being here today. Good morning. Thanks for uh, asking me to be on your show. No, for this is uh, we've been talking about the housing crisis in in our country for mm-hmm. um, quite some time now, and it seems to have reached this heightened crescendo with the loss of the eviction moratorium and the fact that we are still in a pandemic. Um, so I want to talk to you about that, but I want to go broader first and just ask you, what what is the mission of the shift? What is the work that you guys are engaged in every day? Yeah, so I mean, we are very much engaged in what we call the global housing crisis, which you all are experiencing up close and personal in the United States. Uh, the global housing crisis being about, you know, increasing rates of homelessness, evictions, forced evictions, as well as the unaffordability of housing across the world in every city in the in the North and the global South. And the idea of the shift is one, to just highlight that there is a global housing crisis, but more importantly, perhaps to say, this is a crisis that is a human rights crisis because housing is a human right. It is so directly linked to things like dignity, to human life itself, to good health. Uh, and for that reason is understood as a human right. And that when you're in the domain of human rights, you're in the domain of government accountability. And so the shift is really aiming to say to governments around the world, hey, you're not doing good enough here. You are not meeting your human rights obligations. I mean, one of the things that um, I, I think the, the reframe is, is so important because, you know, housing is right now um, often seen as a commodity. I mean, if you really think about it, um, you know, people showed up here um, where there were other people <laughs> here on this continent for example um and then they and then they were like this is going to be mine now uh they removed those other people or killed them then cut it up into little lots and they were like these are little things that we're going to sell to people and they made housing a commodity as opposed to you know this land is all of ours this earth is all of ours and everybody should have the right to be able to live in shelter um how do we get back to, or how do we not even get back to, but how do we erase sort of this narrative that we really all have been acculturated to believe, which is that real estate and housing and you know your apartment are a commodity as opposed to a thing that you have a right to as a human being on earth? Yeah, I mean, that is the big question. The big question too is, is it realistic to think we can erase that 
can we, can we, is it more realistic to think maybe we just need at least to start blurring those lines? So, you know, when you start erasing something and it gets a little blurry, I think maybe that's what we could possibly achieve. And I think, I think things are moving in that direction. In your last conversation, you mentioned uh, Gen Z and how important they are. Um, I see that in my work a hundred percent. They are helping right now to start blurring those lines. But I just want to pick up one thing that you said, because I actually have come to the realization that it's far worse than that housing is just is, you know, considered a commodity. It's actually that housing isn't considered housing at all. And and housing is really just at this point in time, from what I can see globally, it is really just um, uh, another name for economic growth and, and the wealth of a nation and the wealth of individuals. So what I wanna say is, like if you look at how mortgages work, like most most developed countries have mortgage-based housing systems that you know where you can get a mortgage and that enables you to purchase a house because you didn't, wouldn't have enough money to purchase a house without without borrowing. Right. And borrowing is really about economic growth because once you start borrowing, you can leverage, and you can leverage so that you you buy. You're able to send your kid to university. You're able to buy a car. You're able to buy white goods like, you know, laundry machines and refrigerators and expensive stuff. And that is understood as very good for economic growth. And so. mortgages and housing isn't about providing people with a roof and four walls and safety security etc it is about ensuring the growth of a nation and the way we know that is if you look to the global south and you see what's happening there you'll often see countries that are um, maturing in terms of their development what they what they start introducing is a mortgage based housing system because that kickstarts economies that gets people indebted and it it means that more money is flowing into the economy as people become more indebted so it's really a kind of slavery you might say if i if i might use that term um, a, a slavery to economic growth and the people who are running our countries and so so that undoing that of course is a big it's a big deal right because what we would be saying is we don't really care about mega economic growth. We want to slow down economic growth for the well-being of every individual in a nation. And that's a big, that's a big ask, right? Um, right. But that's, that's certainly what the shift is on about. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we like the phrase economic growth because it makes us feel like, oh, everybody's getting richer. This is good. Right. Economic yeah. growth means that everyone has more money. Everybody buys more stuff. This is nothing but a positive. But like, we know from our lived experience that when we experience economic growth, I mean, we experienced economic growth last year. How many people had a good year last year? If you didn't have stocks, you didn't have a good year. Exactly. So the idea that economic growth is is always tied to personal financial gain, that's just not true. Like that's not true in our country. It's not true across the world. And it's it's going to be really hard to undo that because you know all of our schooling teaches us that economic growth is you know nothing but a positive for everybody. That I think that is so well put. And and really, if you look at okay, so the U.S. is in, is is technically the richest country in the world. And where do you see 
so much abject poverty, homelessness, mm. 2 million people facing uh, possible evictions, um, you know, and, and, and housing precarity. So there is, in fact, a, what, what you're saying to me, I think, is that there is, a, in fact, a direct relationship, perhaps, between economic growth and, and entrenched and ongoing poverty and, and inequality. And that's what's so um, morally repugnant about, about the way the world is being structured right now. It really is so true. It. And it's, 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 it's really, no, 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 no. It's, it, because I think that to Jess's point also, I, I feel like when we, um, when we watch political campaigns or, or, or watching the television news, they're like, there's the ticker at the bottom of the screen. And then they're like, this is how much the stock market went up by or down by, um, be it the economy added this many jobs. And it's so abstract right I, it, it's yeah. it's yeah. oh the economy is growing like and people at home who are really struggling or people who are homeless for example are not feeling that growth i mean the economy no. there have been homeless if there have been homeless people at every single point um you know throughout history no matter what the state of the economy isn't that evidence that we're doing it wrong exactly exactly and it's what's so amazing is it's so Frickin', excuse me, but obvious, right? The wealth of a nation is increasing. You would expect to see less poverty, less homelessness, more housing security, more health security. And we are seeing the exact opposite. So how is how is that possible? And in fact, that's kind of how I got into this whole area of the financialization of housing. Um, you know, the, the uber commodification of housing is, is how I would describe that. Because what I saw was, you know, the global value of residential real estate is something like two, residential real estate, $220 trillion. Okay, so that's a global value of residential real estate, $220 trillion. No one knows how much money that is. That, as, right. as Professor Saskia Sasson says, it exits the domain of money. It's, it's, it's like 200 Bezoses. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, and yet, I was going to city after city in the north and in the south and seeing people living on the streets, in tents, in parks, in cars, uh, you know, caravans, et cetera. And so to me, that disconnect, we, we have to start talking about that disconnect and how is it possible that real estate can be so valuable, so many people benefiting, and yet so many people living on the streets, right? Just doesn't make sense. Well, I think we think about it as like a housing shortage. Like when we think yes. about homelessness, <laughs> we think about like a housing shortage, like, oh, we just don't have places to put them. But like when when you contrast that with the news that we're receiving, which is that people are being evicted from homes that they are in. And, you know, I live in New York City. So all through the pandemic, we were watching this like awful NIMBY push and pull on the Upper West Side where there were vacant hotels mm. that, you know, neighborhoods were trying to say, don't use these to house homeless people during the pandemic, which like, if that was you, like, please, oh my God, think about your choices. Someone raised you, someone taught you <laughs> values. But like these things that we hear in the news, they totally undermine the idea that homelessness is because of a housing shortage. So I just wanted to ask you to sort of extrapolate on that a little bit. 
I'm so happy you raised that. And I, I just recently got into a bit of a Twitter um, fight or whatever on this issue. I'm so, so tired of a lot of people sitting pretty in privilege saying that this is a housing supply issue. And I'm not saying that there aren't some supply issues. I think in the US, in Canada, in other states, there may be a lack of social housing that every country is going to need as a social safety net. In the U.S., you've, you've really basically moved, the governments have moved out of social housing and most of, most of your market is privatized, private market, same in Canada, um, very low rates. And so obviously that social safety net doesn't exist and maybe, maybe more of that kind of supply is required. But to say that this is a supply issue is so ridiculous, as you say. I mean, we know Airbnb units um, exist in in every city, big and small now, by by the hundreds and thousands and sit empty. And we know that investors are buying up affordable housing and making it unaffordable. And that's putting huge pressures on the housing market and and creating this unavoidability uh, crisis. Uh, we know that investors will buy buildings and just sit on the building and not actually um, have any intended mm-hmm. use. There are there are laws around the world. You actually have this program in the U.S., although it's not as kind of fulsome as in other countries called the golden visa program. So in countries in Southern Europe in particular, they introduced um, this golden visa program where you could basically buy a piece of real estate, spend two or three days or there's or a little bit longer in the country and become a resident and eventually a citizen. Um, and often what they're doing is they're just buying a piece of real estate, not doing anything with it, have no intention of living there. And it stands empty. Uh, and yet they become citizens, no flow of money into the country, no, no productive value there. Um, so to talk about the housing crisis as a supply, um, well, just put it this way. The people who talk about it as a supply problem are the very people who benefit Mm. from talking about it as a supply issue Mm -hmm. because they're developers and they want to be able to just keep building um, without any consideration for what is actually needed. You know, like what's happening is luxury is being built the new, the new builds are all luxury high-end for investors. I call it investor-driven housing. And they're not building for the families that are just struggling to make ends meet, the everyday person, the frontline key workers, you know, we saw during the pandemic, we're still seeing who are living so precariously mm-hmm. on low incomes. Um, so, so we have to blow open this supply argument and, and talk about what kind of supply for whom, what's missing, and, and do, we, do we do the kind of city audits that are necessary to determine whether there's actually a supply problem or not? Right. It's so important to think of it that way because, um, you know, gentrification, um, you know, something that we, Jess and I, talk a lot about on the show because we're, well... Uh, you know, for, well, up until very recently, I was a New Yorker. (laughs) Um, But uh, so, so that was a thing that we was part of our lived experience, but really understanding that people are, are pushing out 
working families and building high rises, um, some of which sit empty <laughs> in some cases. Um, yeah. But I, I don't, there is nothing. I, I remember when I first moved to like Bed-Stuy um, in Brooklyn and I remember sitting in a coffee shop and I looked around and I was like, I am the only black person in here. And everyone's looking at me like I am out of place. And I'm so confused as to why that is <laughs> because I'm sitting in Bed-Stuy Brooklyn. But like, I think, you know, as we see um, communities of color get pushed out of these areas and priced out, um, it, it becomes so frustrating to, to sit back and not push hard against those arguments that say there are shortages because there are not. They're building things all the time. They're just not building it for the average person, you know, the yeah. regular ordinary worker. That's right. Zerlina, I think that's, I think that's bang on. And I think in the U.S., um, you know, and I'm not, I am by no means an expert on the housing crisis in the U.S., but from, from what I know, from what I've seen, it is absolutely a crisis of racism there i just there's no other way to slice it from what i can see who is being most impacted right african americans black americans indigenous peoples uh people of latin uh origin so you know it's it's and there's a real reckoning that has to go on a different kind of uh reckoning and reconciliation than is than is um, often talked about. Um, and just on that gentrification front, I actually have stopped using the term gentrification because I think what's going on is, is um, uh, sort of more purposeful in a way. Some, there's a way in which gentrification, I guess it, it can be purposeful, but it also can happen um, sort of over time and a little bit organically. I mean, what's happening with housing is, um, you know, it's a business model and it is um, full throttle. So it is just for, for the listeners, if they don't know what I'm talking about when I say financialization. So Elena, you just, you just sort of summed it up so nicely. It is when private equity our big capital, pension funds, insurance companies, asset management firms with uber, uber liquidity and uber access to cheap money because money is cheap these days because interest rates are so low. They will buy up buildings and multiple buildings. For example, Blackstone, largest private equity in the area of residential real estate, bought up in San Diego 66 apartment complexes in one transaction, right? Apartment complexes. Right. Um, so they buy them up. They do cosmetic upgrades, um, sometimes a little bit more substantial upgrades, and they use that as a vehicle for raising rents. The rents that people are paying securitize the loans that these guys, and they're mostly guys, are securing, um, are, are getting. So they use the everyday tenants' rent to securitize. Um, and then they just leverage and leverage more. So the building is owned or the buildings are only used to leverage more capital. So finance becomes financialized itself. Uh, I mean, it, it is. And so, you know, it doesn't matter to them whether the area that the building is being purchased is up and coming mm -hmm. or not up and coming. All they right. care about is whether they can raise the rents such that they can securitize their loans and leverage more capital. It's pretty, Money. it's evil. 
<laughs> no, the, the world is organized in a morally repugnant way is going to yeah. be my mantra for like <laughs> the next year. I want to thank you for this conversation and also for the work that you do at, at the shift. Leilani Farah, thank you so much for joining thank us today. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jess and Zerlina. It's been great. Thanks for listening to the Signal Boost podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with more news. <laughs>